Michael Bird will write in his commentary this about the uh, book of Romans. He actually says this in his author's uh, preface. He says, when people read Romans, big things can happen. Paradigm shift, decades of compromise are called out. The superficiality of Christian culture is named and shamed. We are refreshed by a scandalous grace. Joy in the gospel is rediscovered. And the evangelical mission of the church is reaffirmed. I don't know if you've read that, Romans. I hope we have. But as we move into the latter part of the book of Romans, uh, we're going to move into some places where there's going to be some uh, practical uh, expressions for how the church lives. It's praxis is kind of the word we use. But what does it look like for us to live as the people of God in relation to what we've heard in the first 11 chapters of Romans? So what does it look like on the ground in light of the groundwork that has been laid uh, in what is normally the treatment of Romans, the theological treatise that uh, leads it off, which usually gets most of the attention. I'm excited because the next couple weeks, we have a couple great uh, preachers coming to preach. And so looking forward to what they're going to share. Now, I don't say that because I get two weeks off from writing sermons, all right? But we have some wonderful folks who are going to be preaching in the next couple of weeks. I look forward to Haley's going to be preaching, and I know Rachel's going to be preaching. So uh, looking forward to what they'll be sharing uh, from, from Romans. So yeah, indeed. But you got me for one more week, so here we go. In reading Romans backwards, author Scott McKnight makes the argument for beginning our reading of Romans right here in chapter 12. Uh, the start of what's the last section of this book, reading through chapter 16. We're a bit late to adopt McKnight's practice here at this point in the sermon series, but he does make a good point. Reading here and through the end of the book helps to make sense of what was said earlier in the text. So for readers and hearers who might still be at a loss at this point in this sermon series, uh, perhaps the coming weeks will help clear things up a bit. In 1942... Americus, Georgia. Was anybody there? Were you in Americus, Georgia in 1942? Anybody there? I wasn't there. But George, uh, but excuse me, Clarence and Florence Jordan, Martin and Mabel England started what's called Koinonia Farm. And the goal from the beginning was to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Or as their website describes it, and yes, they do have a website, it's still in operation even today. There to be an intentional community of believers sharing their lives and resources, following the example of the first Christian communities as described in the Acts of the Apostles. That's what they set out to be. There to be this demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Now, I like the sound of that. I like the sound of being a demonstration plot. But how do you become such a plot? How do you become that demonstration? And what all does that entail? Well, Romans 12 here uh, fills in that picture for us. It begins to take shape there. And the picture developed here draws on what's already been said previously in Romans. Because Paul will have the connecting words here, I appeal to you therefore, right from the get-go. He's appealing to them, uh, therefore, those type of words are saying, hey, this is all based on what I've said previously in the last chapter, but also in the last chapters. Before we get too far into what that picture looks like, we need to heed the words of John Murray who offers this sage advice in his commentary when he says, it is, a futile, it is futile to give practical exhortations apart from the basis on which it rests or the spring from which compliance must flow. So to avoid such futility this morning, we do well to make sure that we 
cover our bases. I know I went to a baseball game yesterday. That's a bad pun, right? That's, that's, I, I, but we're going to cover our bases here this morning. On the basis of God's mercy is what it says in verse 1. God's mercy is pondered to some length in both chapters 9 and 11 of Romans. In chapter 9, we hear that echo of God's words to Moses drawn from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, particularly around the issue of election, his choice of Israel. And then in chapter 11 as well, you recall verses 30 through 32 at the end of that chapter and how that mercy is demonstrated to the Gentiles with the aim of God's mercy being then extended to all, both Jew and Gentile. And later in chapter 15, we once more see the aim of the Gentile mission, where we read that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Just the idea here, particularly in chapter 11, has the writer moved to song. You remember that from last week, where, where Paul, he's just thinking about this, and he's writing about it, and the guy explodes into a doxology, explodes into this singing. But God's mercy here is the basis for what follows here in chapter 12 and on. That new life moves God's people to a new way to live. And this new life is more than a tune. As Elizabeth Shively will observe, as it is the calling the audience now to respond to God's great mercies, not in doxology, but with a living sacrifice. A bunch of years ago, I had the chance to attend an exhibit entitled Bodies. Did you ever go to that exhibit? Did you ever go to the Bodies exhibit? How many people went to that? Raise your hand. So people can see who it was who went to that. Okay, we'll find you. It was a fascinating exhibit. It was a little creepy. I have to say that. It was a bit creepy. Especially as you think about all the organic fleshy stuff that's in that room, right? It's all this stuff is gathered together. Trying to separate in your mind the fact that these all belong to real people who once were fully alive. I think we make that kind of separation in our day-to-day -day life all the time, where we separate what we think about the body and other parts of our so-called existence, the mind, the spirit, the soul. We do it all the time when we talk about faith and spiritual life. But the idea here in Romans 12 is, is not such a disconnection. Instead, we are bodied persons. I think we have to come to terms with that. Some of us spend our entire life trying to come to terms with who we are as a bodied person and all the things that make up who we are. Whether that's underlying diseases or disorders, or maybe that's even just the challenge of trying to be comfortable with ourselves. So many of us go through that challenge, but that's the first thing we need to recognize at least. You may not be comfortable with it, but to recognize that I'm here. I'm located right here. Oftentimes I try to escape to other places in my mind, but I'm still located right here, and you're located in the place where you've been placed there. But to see here that we're embodied, and our way of life is to be one that's offered to God as a full person. Now the strange thing here is that this embodied way of life that's being talked about here is offered to God who is both invisible but yet also present. That's quite a contrast to the idea, though, of sacrifices in that first century. Back in, in the day, it would have been quite different to offer myself as a living sacrifice. The whole nature of sacrifices is that something's offered and it's not living after the sacrifice is complete. But here we are in this, this contrast of a living sacrifice. But it also might be a contrast in our own day. 
It's why we oftentimes try to remind ourselves here in worship. When we talk about the giving of an offering, the collection of offerings, we're offering ourselves. We're not disconnected. We don't take our lives and fragment them and take little pieces and decide which ones we're giving. So when we talk about this idea of a living sacrifice, we're talking about an offering, an embodied offering from ourselves as ourselves. Or maybe these words might be helpful. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow into endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. That gets close to this idea of what it means to be this living sacrifice, the offering of ourselves. But not just ourselves, our persons, our bodies, but also our minds as well. And Paul connects those together here. He has them living together here in his argument because, again, he's recognizing ourselves as oneself. There is a transformation that is happening there in our minds and the way that we think when we're in Christ. As we are in communion with Jesus, our thinking is being changed and it's being renewed. That we become better able to know and to live into the life God has, has for us. The people that God wants us to be. The term that oftentimes gets associated here to this type of change and transformation is the word sanctification. And that process of becoming more and more within the character and likeness of God. But we have to learn to live this new way. And in our tradition, we oftentimes, actually not oftentimes, we all the time, when we gather in worship, we have a moment of confession because we recognize that it's not as though we're getting degree upon degree upon degree upon degree until we reach total perfection. We recognize that we hit speed bumps all the time, and there's a refresh button that has to be hit there, a renewal. But there is a renewal that's happening. There is a refreshing that's happening. There is a changing that's happening here. And so as we live to learn this new way, we are actually learning to live in the new age, in the new world that we've been invited into, that we've been called to, that's been presented and prepared for us in Jesus Christ. And so we need to have our minds awakened. And again, you hear that same type of language when we come to the table each week. Like those early disciples in the end of Luke's Gospels, whose eyes were open. There's awakening that happens as we're encountered by grace. Observing what this would mean for the earliest audience, McKnight will write this. He says, this sacrifice is a dual action of God orientation and away from the world orientation. To turn to God, to embody a life that is sacrificial worship, is to turn from the way of Rome, to turn to Christoformity. Now, you might say, I've already turned from Rome a long time ago. I never was a Roman citizen, and so I don't have to, have to worry. But... If the presidential cycle, we are currently, how should we say this? Enduring, <laughs> might be the right word, has just gotten started. The news headlines, as we go out to the popular news channels, and we look for the headlines of the day, and the stories that come forward, do not turn us away from our national interest, but try to draw us into places that focus our attention on nonsense, on craziness, on things that divide and destroy, on things that rot our minds and our communities, on things that cause us to hurt and harm each other. And for what? For what gain? And naturally, following Paul's writing here, and this leads to that, this sense here, and if you read Paul's writings in Philippians 2, for instance, 
this crystalformity, this change of mind, this offering of self, it's going to go one place. It's naturally going to go down a path. And the path that Paul imagines here shows up for us right here from the outset of chapter 12. It's a recognition that we are to live as expressions within humble community. We're to humble ourselves. We're to lift others up. We recognize their gifts. We recognize that we share the same faith and that God has dispensed gifts amongst God's people that we might enjoy those and be enriched by one another's abilities that are God-given. So to a culture, the time of Rome, where status was held in such high esteem, where violence and might were the means to peace and prosperity. Doesn't sound like any country that you know, does it? All of this would seem wrong-headed. All of this would seem completely wrong and outside of the way life is to be lived. In short, power doesn't give away its crowns that easy. Heading back to that Koinonia farm, on August 13, 1950, in that same Americus, Georgia, the location was Rehoboth Baptist Church. A vote was being taken by that congregation. Apparently, members of the Koinonia farm had done the unthinkable. They'd done the unthinkable. If you read their history page on their website, they don't mention the story. But the unthinkable was they invited a man to come to worship with them one Sunday morning. A man named R.C. Sharma they invited him to come and to worship, to hear about Jesus, to hear the good news of the gospel. But R.C. Sharma was a Hindu. He was from India. But that doesn't deter him from hearing the gospel, right? Gentile and Jew alike, according to Romans, Christ's love is extended to them. The problem with R.C. Sharma was his skin was too dark. And so the church brought up charges against Koinonia Farm, its founders and its members. And the church voted two-thirds to throw them out of the fellowship. When I read that story, I thought, how strange that your name is Koinonia and you just got kicked out of fellowship from a church. That must have hurt particularly more. The church sat in silence following the vote until somebody broke out and started sobbing. And then the church sat for five minutes quietly crying after they had made their decision and they filed out one by one and left. If you go out to Uriah Baptist Church's Facebook page today, you'll see on their, on their photos, they still, they're still a church in operation. It says, welcome, we're glad you're here. I hope things have changed over the years. I think they probably have. But to recognize when we talk about power struggles and we talk about challenges against the status quo and, and places where privilege exalts people above other folks, when we talk about the very things Paul is saying here to this audience, saying, hey, all that groundwork I laid out for you was so that you could address these issues that are on the ground, where maybe you're looking a little bit too Roman here, and it's causing difficulties within the church. Here's what the church of Jesus Christ looks like. It looks like a place where people are offering of themselves to God as sacrificial offerings. It looks like a place where people's minds and thinking is being transformed, not transformed by social media, not transformed by the news cycle, not transformed by the political candidate we might have in mind, not even transformed by the day-to-day -day just crud 
that fills our hearts and minds, but Jesus Christ working in and through us and bringing healing and renewal. To see that it happened in a church as well, that even churches are not immune. We're not immune to these struggles and these power plays. But if we're to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God, if we're to be those kind of people, this is the way forward. We're to be bodies offered to Christ. We're to be minds renewed by Christ. We're to be a community that's supported in Christ. In closing, inscribed above the entrance to Center Court Wimbledon, you might know this, is a line. It says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. The line itself is from Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, If, a poem that you may have heard before and you may not even known it. Now, it's not to be confused with the 1971 song by Bread that shares the same title. A couple of years ago, Serena Williams did a reimagined version for International Women's Day of that same poem. And I found several versions on, you know, my favorite website, YouTube, that was read by famous people this past week, and you know I listened to them. Morgan Freeman reads one. Ralph Fiennes reads one. Dennis Hopper does one. And Sir Michael Caine does one, though curiously he gets one of the lines wrong in the poem. So I don't know how that happened, but he he does get one of the lines wrong. The poem in both its forms, the Kipling and the Williams versions, offers sage advice to the hearer. Sage advice to them. Let me give you an example from the original. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, And it goes on until it ends with this. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. That's where Michael Caine, he puts 40 seconds. I don't know why he does it. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. The poem was inspired, though, and it paid tribute to Sir Leander Starr Jameson, who led a failed a raid to overthrow the Boer government in South Africa. So inspired was Kipling that he wrote a poem that went on to be considered one of the great poems of the English language. It's an inspiring poem that itself here was inspired by another. It sounds a little bit to me like the structure of Romans chapter 12. Not the line for line that we hear there in the if poem, but that's idea that something that goes on to inspire others was itself rooted in and inspired by another. That it invites us to live, invites us to think and relate in ways that are inspired by that one who's the inspiration. But the one who inspires these texts in Romans chapter 12 wasn't the head of a failed revolution. The one who inspired these is quite to the contrary. Instead, Jesus Christ not only received glory on the cross, and claimed decisive victory from the grave, but went on to form one body, Jew and Gentile, a new community through faith to all the world as we enter a new age. Which leads me to one of the question here, if, if we were to be those people, if we were to live into the capacity that we have in Christ through God's Spirit, if we were to offer ourselves and to extend ourselves, if we were to follow after the rechanging and challenging, the trans 
the, the changing that we see in our imaginations and our minds because of Christ Jesus. What would that look like? I dare say it would be awesome upon awesome. You can quote me on that last part. But it would be to the glory of God. May that be the way that we live this day and every day of our lives by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love. We particularly are mindful of your mercy and your grace and how that transforms us as a community, how it invites us to places, maybe some places we're too afraid to go. So Lord, we pray that your, your power and your grace would overcome our fears. Lord, in that good work that you're doing in transforming us to be the people that you've called. Lord, that we might live that way as a community here in this community, but also as we go from this place and we serve our families and neighborhoods and the people that we encounter along the way, that your grace might abound. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.